kids understand stories visually in a way that the books that were written in the old days of kids' books, which were very much like this affectation of, there was a boy and he lived in the street, the street was so-and-so, and it's just like, that's not how kids collect stories. Growing up, James Ponty was not a reader. Instead of books, he found himself getting lost in the world of film and television. It's a world he spent 25 years of his adult life in. And now, as a writer of children's literature, he takes his experiences of that world with him. I go to the locations in the books when I can, and I go there and I scout them the same way I scouted them when I was shooting documentaries. James credits a lot of his success in literature to the storytelling techniques he learned and mastered from his time in visual media. And he tells us that he's not the only author using those strategies. All of these writers who people know all started as scriptwriters. In today's episode, James shares those big names you definitely know, and he'll also share the exact techniques he's using from his time in television, and we'll learn why he believes writing with the screen in mind is so impactful in children's literature. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and reading enthusiasts to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. I want to take you back to a hot Floridian summer day in the 1970s. It's a Tuesday morning, and a young James Ponty is taking his regular seat in the front rows of a near-empty movie theater. This is where his writing education begins. And I would watch the movie. And because my brothers didn't want anything to do with me, I was too young, and my mom was busy. At the end of the movie, if I really liked it, I would just watch it again. And so I would sit through it twice. And and I, very young age, realized the second time through, since I knew how the plot was going to turn out, I began to understand how they made the movie. And I began to understand story things. James is aware that the tough circumstances of his early life may seem like he had things pretty hard. But despite appearances, he recalls his youth in the small beach town quite fondly. We didn't have money, didn't have a dad. There's a lot of things we didn't have. So when you talk about that, it sounds sad. It was an incredibly happy childhood. The ocean was five blocks from my school and my house was directly in the middle of them. And I could walk two and a half blocks and I would be in school, which I loved. Or I could walk two and a half blocks, I'd be at the beach, which I loved, and swim in the ocean and run up and down the sand with, you know, forever, or ride bikes, and it was great. Yeah, I've heard your mom played a a pretty big role in making your childhood feel as magical as it did. My mother was extremely creative. She was a painter. And to make a living, she just one day opened a a travel agency in our house. And so we became a travel agency. Everyone in the family was instantly conscripted into working for her. But she wanted to be a writer more than anything. She loved writing. She would send off book ideas to publishers. And when she passed and I was going through her stuff, I found rejection letters. And I think it gave her great happiness that writing was the thing that I decided was I wanted to pursue. It was her love of film that resulted in his own habit of spending his days in the theater. The thing my mom loved the most to do was go to the movies. And since I was so much younger, I would go to movies that were 
way more mature content wise, not like sexually, but just like stuff that other other eight and nine year olds weren't going to go see, you know. And I just loved it, you know. And so my mom really responded to that too. So when I said I'm going to be a film major, a screenwriting major, my mom was on cloud nine, and everyone else was like, "You can't possibly be picking that as your major." And I'm like, no, that's it. And my mom's like, absolutely, that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm thinking about like the Fablemans. If you've seen it, you know. And oh yeah, no, like, that struck home. Do- <laughs> that that uh, hit home. But you had mind. the bomb. You had the bomb. We, I had only that was only with <laughs> right. the bomb. I didn't, you didn't have, have the brake pedal. I called the dad the brake pedal. Yeah, know? we didn't have that. James watched film after film, absorbing storytelling techniques, characters, and world building. But it was one movie in particular that set the rest of his life in motion. All the President's Men. So this is a movie about Watergate. It um, came out in 1976, so I was 10 years old. And my mom and brothers went to see it, and I went with them. And my brother said, you're wasting a ticket on him to see this movie. You know, it's about two reporters covering the Watergate thing. But mom's like, she didn't believe in babysitters. So it's like, he's coming. And so we go, and we sit, and we watch All the President's Men. And at the end of it, I just have this look on my face and my brother goes see look at him and I turned to my mom and I said this is the greatest movie of all time we're staying and I made my family sit and watch it back to back which none of them ever did they didn't like doing that and it was because I had heard about Watergate for years it was this constant grown up discussion that made no sense to me that was so boring and so annoying and now the president had quit and all these things and it didn't make any sense to me and in two hours the world made sense to me and I thought isn't that great this movie has explained what no one has been able to explain to me over the last two three years and not only that the heroes of the movie are the writers and that happened to be the year I had this amazing school teacher that I knew I wanted to be a writer. And so I decided in fifth grade when I was 10 years old that I'd be a writer. And not one day from that point on that I ever want to be anything else. Okay, so All the President's Men was a very big influence, clearly, on your journey to becoming a writer. But I've also heard you talk a lot about the impact that your teachers had on your writing aspirations. So maybe you could share a little bit about those experiences. In middle school, I had this other fantastic teacher. And my life is littered with amazingly good teachers this um, teacher, Mr. Tyree, and he loved movies, like I did, so I loved it. And I had him for three years in a row. He taught gifted English, so I had him each year in middle school. And for a month or six weeks of each year, he would basically stop English and we would make a movie in class. And I wrote the movie every year. And then my last year, ninth grade, um, because we had junior highs and middle schools back then, so ninth grade, my last year with him, I'm like, This is it. I want to write scripts. I want to write movies or plays. And he looked at me and he said, write a play. And I'm like, what? He didn't ask the principal. He didn't ask my mom. He said, if you write a play, we'll produce it. And so I wrote a play for our class and we produced it. And it was awful. (laughs) It was so inappropriate. What was it called? I believe the exact title was Santa Slay 79. And it was a a movie about terrorists taking over Santa Slay (laughs) on Christmas Eve. It was kind of like Airplane and all these like silly comedies. Right, and, right. you know, I played Jimmy Carter. I had a bit role. I had to get, there's there a fist fight between Ayatollah Khomeini and an elf. There's <laughs> machine guns. There's like 30 things that a public school could not even come close to now. Right. 
But I sat there all day and I watched these kids as we produced it for the school and different grades would come in and they laughed at my stupid jokes. And I thought, oh, so maybe journalists or maybe plays or maybe movies. I, I thought about all these things. And, and to be honest, like I said, we didn't have much money growing up and I applied to three colleges and I got into them. And depending on where I got the best financial aid, I was going to either be a major in journalism, playwriting or screenwriting. And it was like, it was really down to that. And then the best, everything came through for USC to go major in screenwriting. So I headed out to California. That was where the academic life took me. After his studies, James spent 25 years working in television. For the first decade of that, he was writing for children's shows with companies such as Nickelodeon, Disney, and PBS. While he enjoyed his work immensely, family obligations took his career on a different path. My oldest son, was severely autistic and epileptic. And he needed care kind of around the clock. When I was at a point where TV writing meant going back to California, we didn't think it was a good thing for him to change. And so what I ended up doing is I segued into producing television. And so you can produce cable TV from almost anywhere. So I would do like, I did a series for the History Channel, a series for Spike TV. You know? and, and again, I loved it. It was great. Was, I, did, I did Golf Channel and NBC Sports, but also, you know, I did three years of roller derby for Spike TV. I did, you know, all kinds of strange things, which all have come in very handy in my now what I'm doing because I learned about things I never would have learned about. But I missed the writing as I got further away from writing. And so... I worked in television for about 25 years, but in that period, I started dabbing at the edge of books just partly to make extra money to pay for doctors or tuition or whatever, or because I missed, I wanted to scratch that, that writing itch. And I liked that. And then about 10 years ago, my wife and I said, you know, we really need to take care of Alex. One of us is going to have to quit our day job. And I said, it'll be better if I quit. She's a school teacher because I can write at home. But I just have to build up this book thing to see if that can be a thing that I can build enough to do to support, you know, to carry my weight in supporting us and all like that. That's when I started writing Dead City. Actually, I started writing Dead City, like, on the floor of the children's hospital next to my son's hospital bed. You know, it was kind of like where we were. And it's just because, you know, I had to work. And... You know, I was watching him, but if he's asleep, I, you know, I had a computer and I just, you know, start working. And Alex actually ended up passing away eight years ago. And it was a shock. It was not at all what anything indicated would be happening. But he had led me to this thing of writing these books. And so I just kept doing it. And I feel like he's part of that. And I kind of keep him around by writing the books. That was a longer answer than you were looking for. I apologize. Yeah, no, I'm processing also about your, I did know that your son had passed away. Yeah. I'm very sorry, but I didn't, I didn't realize that that was also, it's like very. It's central to this. Yeah. And just knowing like that was all like the reason for your actually yeah. like taking that leap, yeah. you know, is really heavy. From James's childhood and his love of movies, it's no surprise that he ended up writing stories for the screen himself. But his talent for writing novels wasn't always clear to him. In fact, as a kid, he hated reading books. It was a labor for me beyond anything else. 
Reading just didn't come naturally to him. It was hard and it took him a long time and it made him feel like it just wasn't for him. Had he not found his love of stories through film, James may not have ever realized his own talent for telling stories. However, there was one novel that did get through to him and in analyzing it now as an adult, he's come to understand why that book became the exception. Claudia knew that she could never pull off the old-fashioned kind of running away. That is, running away in the heat of anger with a knapsack on her back. She didn't like discomfort. Even picnics were untidy and inconvenient. All those insects and the sun melting the icing on the cupcakes. Therefore, she decided that her leaving home would not just be running from somewhere, but would be running to somewhere. To a large place, a comfortable place, an indoor place, and preferably, a beautiful place. And that's why she decided upon the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. She planned very carefully. She saved her allowance and she chose her companion. She chose Jamie, the second youngest of her three brothers. He could be counted on to be quiet, and now and then he was good for a laugh. Besides, he was rich. Unlike most boys his age, he had never even begun collecting baseball cards. He saved almost every penny he got. But Claudia waited to tell Jamie that she had decided upon him. She couldn't count on him to be that quiet for that long. And she calculated needing that long to save her weekly allowances. It seemed senseless to run away without money. Living in the suburbs had taught her that everything cost. Those are the opening paragraphs of E.L. Konigsberg's 1967 novel from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, The story follows two siblings who run away from home and shelter in New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. The book was an outlier in James's reading experience as a kid. Instead of becoming a chore to keep pushing through, James was hooked and his imagination had a place to wander, just like it did when he watched movies. You're looking at one, two, three, four paragraphs at the start of a book. And... We already have our main character. We already have our mission, our plan, whatever. We know the secondary character. But, you know, what's what's always great is when you have a character talking about the other character, you learn about both. So, you know, not only do we learn about Jamie, but we learn about Jamie and we learn about Claudia by what she thinks of Jamie. And I think that must have been why, you know, and I, and I don't have a great memory of reading this book, like specifically like when or even what grade it was. I just remember that I read it and that I loved it. Yeah, I love that book so much myself. But I'm thinking that immediate engagement, that quality, you find it a lot in movies too, right? Like you're right in the action, yeah? So the the movie that I loved with a passion was Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is famous for having the scene center of all scene centers, this rock boulder chase thing that you're eight minutes in. And what's great about that is that has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Right but it has everything to do with everything that you care about, right? Raiders really changed the way movies were made because everyone then wanted this cold open that just grabbed you. And and so I think that's probably, that is the case, you know. I don't have academic training beyond high school English of writing fiction, but I do have a lot of training in writing screenplays and they stress that you know, they, they say the most important part of a script is usually the first five pages. So that probably rubbed off in there somewhere. 
But there was another film-connected choice that Konigsberg made for this novel, something you'll notice that is very present in the novels that James writes today. I was a very well-behaved kid, the thought of running away. That's as much adventure as I could imagine, could, could never have done. But the thought of running away to someplace, and that's where, again, I think Elaine Konigsberg did such a great job. This isn't a running away, this is a running to. And the fact that she picked a real place that I could go see when I went to New York, that I could recapture, that I could visit, that the places she would talk about there, the fountain where they bathe or the bathrooms where they hide, it's just, wow, there's so many great elements. It's so, so great. In college, we I took a class in Shakespeare, so, or not Shakespeare, Hitchcock. Hitchcock is like the film version of Shakespeare. Right? I took this class in Hitchcock, and his movies almost always had like scenes set in famous locations. So you have Mount Rushmore or the UN or something like that, right? I like that in my books. So I go to the locations in the books when I can, and I go there and I scout them the same way I scouted them when I was shooting documentaries. Like I will go to the train station in Edinburgh and I'll say, okay, where would I put the camera? Well, why are you picking that place to put the camera? Well, then that means that's where you should put the action. And so the action's going to happen where we could cover it well. And how are the actors or the characters or whatever you want to call them, how are they going to get in the scene and move around? And so I'll go and I'll just kind of walk around the same way I did for years producing television to really figure out the best way to take advantage of a location. And then I do that for the book. So like I just two days ago turned in the first draft of City Spice 5. Do we get to know where that's going to be? Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be um, Venice, Italy. Oh, you're going, you're, we're going to Italy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Went back to Venice, Washington, D.C., and New York City. And the big climax takes place at the um, New York Public Library. So I wrote to the people I got in touch, and my editor, my wife, and I took a tour at the New York Public Library, behind the scenes and in all these rooms that we're not supposed to go in, and took all kinds of pictures. And I took scouting pictures, just like I would on a shoot for a shoot. And then at my computer while I'm writing it, I'm pulling them up. And I'm like, oh, wait, that's right. That's right. We want to make sure to use that thing because that's really interesting. Now, for, for television, you're looking for something that's visually interesting. Here, you're looking for visually interesting, but also you can do a little backstory interesting. You know, for, for example, at the New York Public Library, the thing that just stuck with me the most is there are seven stories of stacks of iron, I'm sorry, steel bookcases that are empty because they realize that it's better to store them in a controlled environment underground. But they have to leave the bookcases up because the bookcases hold up the building. They're supporting the, the, the building. They, right. <laughs> the, the, they built beams and turned them into bookcases. Yeah. And I was like, well, I've got to include that somehow because some kid reading that, they're going to remember that. Yeah, that sticks with you. The newest in your installment is the City of the Dead. And this took us to um, Egypt. Yes. But you, when you wrote it, I understand you, it was during the pandemic, so you couldn't actually go to do your research like you usually do. I, I don't really have the money just to say, hey, I'm going to go do research in Egypt, um, as much as I would like to. I would have tried to, but COVID made it impossible. I did a lot of research online, and I tracked down a lot of people. The great thing about the books being a little successful is that I can reach out to people and they call back. So like for Egypt, I really, I went to Disney Plus and I pulled up the National Geographic thing and I'm like, who's the go-to Egyptologist in these documentaries? 
And I wrote her. And like an hour later, she wrote back and she's like, sure. And so we did a Zoom and I recorded it. So I, I'm like, I'm not gonna get to go there. Tell me about the airport. Tell me about the noise. Tell me about the inside the pyramid. What's it look like? And then, you know, so in this book, we talk about serious things. There's a break-in at the British Museum that they do. There's a heist that they're sent to do in the British Museum. And then it's the story takes them into Egypt. And I got to just throw in there this very adult topic of like, should the British Museum really have all these treasures that are from Egypt? And they argue about it and it's played for humor at parts. It's played, and it's not a messagey kind of thing, but it's like, I'm not gonna shy away from that because I think that's a thing that a 12 year old is interested to know. It's like, oh, okay, that's a good point. James's film-inspired take on locations has been a standout tactic for his stories and well-loved by so many kids. In fact, our next question comes from students of this episode's Beanstack featured librarian, Kathleen Durant. When we spoke, I didn't know this episode would be with James Ponty, but in our conversation, Kathleen mentioned that she was currently doing a community read of City Spies. So naturally, I reached out to see what questions she or her students have for James. The audio is a little muffled, but a kid's voice is always the best. The questions come from two students, Jessica and Brielle. Did you go down into the catacombs to research while writing City Spies? It was the trip to Paris that inspired the books. So my son was going to school in England for the year. He was at a university there. And so my wife and I went to visit. She'd never been to Europe, so we spent a week in London and Paris. And that week became the retroactive research when I decided to write a book based on it. But I didn't know when I went. There's no way my wife would have stepped foot in the catacombs. So we did not go. <laughs> and that was that was her first time in Paris. And my son and I both knew that for three days, we have to do exactly whatever mom wants because she has dreamt of this moment her whole life. And so, no, we did not go into catacombs. And then we just went, when we were in Rome recently doing research and vacation, I said, well, they have catacombs here. And she goes, I'm still not going in them. I, you know, I'm still <laughs> not going underground where there's dead bodies. The second question is one that I bet people ask James often. I actually heard it from another student when I recently took my son to a visit James did here at our local Politics and Prose bookstore. Would there be a City Spies movie? We really want to see it. You know, it's funny because my whole goal in life for so long was to get write a movie. We you know we sold the rights and stuff gets talked about. I don't know that anything will happen of it, but the, the funny thing in it is the agent. So I have a, I have a literary agent and then there's a film agent involved and they're like, with this deal, do you want to write the movie? You know, do you are do you want to at least include in it that you get to write a draft of it and try it and you know whatever? And I said no. And like as I said no, like there's a the 18 year old part of my brain is like, you idiot. And I, I like I said I I it would be a fantasy if this came true. But it's like you know actually that's not what I do now. And certainly there's someone better at it. Right. You know, there's a, I want them. I want it to be great. I love these characters, you know, so maybe there would be. We will see. Is there anybody you, you can you like imagine who would be cast like as any of the characters? You know, I, I imagine people to help me write. Again, this is like the casting part of me, not because I think they should play it, but because 
to remember, okay, this is the color hair they have. And I've said they're tall and I'll say whatever. Who I imagined for mother is, my wife says she's absolutely wrong. She's like, she was so upset when I told her. I always imagine Eddie Redmayne. Oh, really? So interesting. That's not how, but, I, but now that'll be like in my head. <laughs> Eddie Redmayne or um, Tom Hardy. Just really smart British actors. Yeah. I uh, Monty, I imagine as... Karen Gillan, who is in Doctor Who and Guardians of the Galaxy, just because she's Scottish and I want to remember her accent and the red hair. But I don't really imagine them. The only character who I've really imagined is True, who is the the MI6 agent who oversees them all, has from day one been Emma Thompson in my head. Writing for the screen has had a lasting impact on James's writing style overall. He believes the connection between visual writing and children's writing is more vital than some would realize. In fact, he's just one of the many authors in his writing community with a scripting background. Writing is a great community of friends and support. And so I have a number of friends who are writers who are really big kids writers and we're like in text groups and stuff. So like Stuart Gibbs is one who writes the Spy School books. Gordon Corman is one who writes, he's written everything. He's written a hundred different books. Max Brallier writes Last Kids on Earth. Then there's like Shannon Messenger who writes Keep of the Lost Cities. Um, I started in, in television with um, Suzanne Collins who wrote The Hunger Games, one of my oldest, dearest friends in the world. It goes on, Grants and All of these writers who people know all started as script writers. Shannon Messenger, Victoria Aveyard, and I all majored at different ages in the exact same very specific major at USC film school, which when I was there was the only country in the school that taught this. Gordon Corman, had already published five books by the time he went to college, but when he got to NYU, he majored in film. Stuart Gibbs went to L.A. to be a television writer and film writer, and he still does that. I think there's this, this golden era right now that we live of middle-grade fiction. And there's just so much going on in there. And I think the influence of that, I think one of the positives is that people are coming at it from that background a little bit, which I'm sure, again, some people think is a negative. Oh, it's like writing to... But kids understand stories visually in a way that the books that were written in the old days of kids' books, which were very much like this affectation of, there was a boy and he lived in the street, the street was so-and-so, and and it's just like, that's not how kids collect stories. So, yeah, I think my story sense is built from film and then translated to books. And by that, that's is when you get down to stuff like um, three-act structure of film is probably pretty evident in my books, even though books aren't traditionally taught to build that way. Most of those authors write, that I mentioned, write in first person. I have two series written in first person. City Spies is not, because I don't think it would have worked in first person. But first person is a natural thing for someone who's a scriptwriter because basically what it is, it's 500 pages, of, 300 pages of dialogue. Right. So you're writing dialogue. You're not writing these esoteric things that I bad English teachers in high school will teach you about, you know, the golden sun dipped into the boiling sea. You know, again, I don't I don't that's not how you write scripts in scripts. You can only write what you see. And so we have that mentality. And then you want to add the other stuff. It's like, oh, wow, I could actually write how someone's feeling or what they're thinking. But it's like you treat it like dessert. Like, oh, I get to do that, which I didn't normally get to do, as opposed to some people who do 
that times a hundred. You know, it's just, and honestly, some people now. I, I think writing now is great across the board. But I think there were there was. I remember part of the reason I got turned off on books is just like I can't get through this. You are in Florida, which is like the. Oh. Ground zero right now for so much uh, controversy about books and all these librarians are like teachers are having to empty their shelves because they're worried about the books they have are not approved. Um, just this cultural moment of like book banning and censorship and everything. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts are, where you th- what you think because you are actually in the state. My wife teaches IB history and IB theory of knowledge, and she has really great students who go to amazing colleges and do great things after school. And, and she's one of those wonderfully hard, loving teachers. And she has collected books from across the country and other countries on our trips and stuff that she thinks will help them when they're writing these papers. And, you know, she has like four shelves just on Lincoln. There's not a single controversial thing in there. No one would have a problem with any of them. But now she has to create a list that has to get approved and she's probably got to take out her library at her, in her classroom at least for a year to clear the books. And she's heartbroken. There's a state library group called FAME, Florida Association of Media Educators. They're fantastic. And they're all dedicated to this, this idea of knowledge and information and books and literature and just helping kids. And to see them cast as villains is mind-boggling to me and heartbreaking to me because this is my home state. I am a public school kid who I was able to find the life that I dreamt of having because I had amazing public school teachers along the way shepherding me and not doing the things like, like I had a teacher who said, okay, write a play. You will do the play. And you couldn't do that now because the standards they have to keep and the this they have to keep. And the, well, that's not part of the curriculum, but it was great. The kids learned how to do it. You know, I, I'm, I'm getting off track of that, but it's just, it's hard, especially because it's my home and I love it here. And I love the schools here. You know, the first author who really like pulled me aside and gave me advice that wasn't someone who I already knew was Lori Hulse Anderson. And Lori and I were at a conference in Florida and she pulled me aside. She said, here's the first thing to remember, James. We're not competitors. We're co-conspirators. You know, but the conspiracy isn't to groom kids to do things. The conspiracy is let's let kids have something other than screens, which I'm, I love screens. I've talked about movies, movies and how much they impacted me. I, I, I love screens. But it's like, no, let's give them something where their imagination can go and where they can be exposed. To and it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. I'm sure so many of your colleagues, I mean, so many people are impacted. So many authors are being impacted all the time. Middle grade authors. I, I also don't want to talk about other people's things because those are their stories to tell. But like a, a lot of people saw when Jerry Craft was uninvited from a school. It's like, for, for new kid? I know. Seriously? I know. That's, you know, and, we're, and the most amazing thing is we're wrapping it in the vocabulary of freedom. You know, we're out to protect freedom by eliminating it. For James's reading challenge, Mystery Author, he wants us to embrace the many perspectives of life by expanding our intake of authors and our intake of authors' works. 
I didn't read growing up because I didn't think I could. And now I read less than I want to because so much of my time is writing books. And, and sometimes when you're writing a book, it's hard to read another one and switch out of that. So what, I've, what I have challenged myself to do over the next year is to read books by people who have not read any other book by that person. So expose myself to different voices. You know, there are these books that you hear about. And it's like, wow, that everyone seems to, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one, you know, like Christina Sue Tornvat, who I have read some of hers, but I mentioned it to friends and people didn't know. And they, and then they tried one. They read, I think most of the, at the time, it was uh, A Wish in the Dark. And then, it won the Newbery Medal, and then they started reading her other books. And it's like, oh, wow, she's really been great all this time. And I just didn't, for whatever reason, because there's so much. The, the, the great thing is there's so many books now. There's such a wide variety of books for young readers. The hard thing is we don't have time to read them all. So the, the challenge I would like to give is pick five authors you've never read, and at least one or two who you've never heard of, and read one of theirs. And before we sign off, let's make sure to hear a little more from our featured librarian, Kathleen Durant, whose students you met earlier in the episode. Kathleen is an awesome librarian at Camden Middle School in Kershaw County, South Carolina. I would say a secret sauce for middle school readers is to make it fun, is to have fun activities. They're really loving the bingo board format for challenges in Beanstack. I also do... Um, use the wheel of names frequently. I'll do the wheel of genre. Um, when they come in for their class visit, I have the genres on a wheel and then they take turns, go up and spin the wheel and they have to pick out a book in whatever genre it lands on. And it's just like, it's fate. I have to get a romance book, you know, and there's joy and exultation. And then there's like, oh, poetry. <laughs> This has been The Reading Culture, and you've been listening to our conversation with James Ponty. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell and We Dream of Space by Aaron and Trotta Kelly. If you enjoyed today's show, please show some love and rate, subscribe, and share The Reading Culture among your friends and networks. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And join us on social media at The Reading Culture Pod for some very awesome giveaways. And be sure to check out the Children's Book Podcast with teacher and librarian Matthew Winner. It's a great book podcast made for kids ages 6 to 12 that explores big ideas and the way that stories can help us feel seen, understood, and valued. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for joining and keep reading. <laughs>